Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by The Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Okay, well, if you haven't done it yet, turn to Psalm 38. Psalm 38 there as we continue on in the Psalms. And uh, 22 verses. Let's go ahead and read them here. It says, A Psalm of David, To bring to remembrance, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. Might want to underline that word foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. For my loins are full of inflammation and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pants, my strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my relatives stand afar off. Those also who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction and plan deception all the day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear, and I am like a mute who does not open his mouth. Thus I am like a man who does not hear, and in whose mouth is no response. For in you, O Lord, I hope. You will hear, O Lord my God. For I said, Hear me, lest they rejoice over me, lest when my foot slips they exalt themselves against me. For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I will declare my iniquity, I will be in anguish over my sin. But my enemies are vigorous and they are strong, and those who hate me wrongfully have multiplied. Those also who render evil for good, they are my adversaries because I follow what is good. Because I follow what is good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Now, I said it, but you probably also noticed that this psalm has 22 verses. Several of the psalms in the 30s have 22 verses. And what do we always wonder when we see a Bible chapter with 22 verses? We wonder if it's one of them acrostics, right? Uh, An acrostic poem. And the answer here is no. And I gave you here this line of information for you. Psalm 9 and 10, when you put them together, Psalm 25, Psalm 34 and 37, the one just before this, Psalm 111, 112, when you put them together, Psalm 119 in that very unique way of eight verses and eight verses all the way down through 176 verses, and then Psalm 145 are acrostic psalms, but not this one. And I think it's noteworthy. I don't know that you hear this very much, but you hear about Proverbs 31 woman all the time, don't you? Well, in addition to all the wonderful things it says in there, it's also an acrostic where you're using the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, Hay, Wah, Zion, and so forth as you go down through it. 
And so uh, it's got 10 to 31 is 22, so there it is. And as well as the first four chapters of Lamentations, so the book of Lamentations also uses that acrostic poetry device. Now, another thing I wanted to point out is, look at the sheet I gave you about the number of verses in each of the 150 Psalms. So the title reads, the number of verses in each of the 150 Psalms. <laughs> And verses is how many verses? So two, three, four, five, and there is all the way down through 24, and then there's not a one with 25 verses in it, so there's one with 26. And then the psalm, that's the number. So it's Psalm 117 that has just two verses. And what I did was I gave you, as we went down through there, where each of the psalms fits in the number of verses. So the largest number is the number 12. 12 have eight verses. So that's the largest number of psalms coming in eight verses. The average number of verses, when you average them all together, and of course Psalm 119 just messes it all up with 176 verses, but uh, the average number of verses is 16 verses. The median number of verses is 12. So I, I've really, in the last few years, when I'm looking at different statistics, I love that median thing. Do you know what that is? That means there's as many one side of it as the other side of it. So it's one thing to say the average age of the tabernacle is. It's another thing to say the median age of the tabernacle. And I think the median age of the tabernacle is 55 or 56, which is interesting because that's the pastor's age. That means there's as many people under that age as there are over that age. And so to me, that's a, a helpful category. And for the Psalms, the medium number of verses is 12, as I've tried to relate to you several times in uh, not, as, not super great language, you know. But uh, as you see in the little box I gave you here, uh, 58 of the Psalms have 1 to 10 verses. That's about 39%. And another 59 have 11 to 20 verses. So 78%, about 4 out of every 5, are less than 20 verses. And that means the other 20% or so uh, are 21 verses or more. And so 13% have 21 to 30 verses like Psalm 38 here. So as we go through, sometimes we got a lot to deal with and sometimes we have a few verses to deal with. And the way I've kind of done this study is that when there's as many verses as there are in uh, you know, 25, 30, 35, 40 or more, I, we, we just do an overview rather than getting into each and every verse like you can do when there's three or five or eight or whatever like that. Uh, does any thoughts jump out to you guys as you look at uh, how that lays out? Did you study this in college? <laughs> no, I did this in the last, last couple months here. Just uh, took the time to go through it. But what's interesting is, Look at that bottom note I gave you there in italics. The shortest 30 psalms contain fewer verses than all of Psalm 119. <laughs> so you could fit the shortest 30 into just that one. It's so long. And I had some information like that related to, uh, 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 you know, Psalm 50 uh, or Psalm 18 that's got 50 verses, but I've forgotten it already. So, And I didn't write it on the back. Those are prayer requests. But... Right. Even worship songs. Yeah. And I think it kind of shows you that the shorter ones, obviously, they were, yeah. they were intended to be yeah. long. Yeah, songs. yeah. And you have some that are long, you have some that are short. And I've always been, you know, saying, hey, I think it's, I love 
like you, I love the old hymns that speak a lot of the deep stuff. Mm, yeah. We need that. Yeah. And even modern day stuff, we need that. Yeah. You know, because you, those who are writing those, but you also need some of those short ones. You do, don't because you? Because you need, you need to remember the when you're in a crisis, you need to remember it as well with my soul. Yeah. That, you can't remember. That's right. That's right. Sixteen pages of stuff that's. Yeah, you can study it and internalize it deeply. And I have known people, Donnie, that had Psalm 119 memorized. But, man, I know a lot more people that have Psalm 23 memorized. <laughs> so that's a great point. That's a great point. Longer and shorter and the variety. And it, I'll tell you, there's the Psalms is so rich. And one of the things that I'll try to point out when we get deeper into the Psalms is beyond David writing half of them approximately, uh, we know 73 have David's name in the title, but two more are attributed to David in the New Testament that were, quote-unquote, not, they were anonymous or not with an author. So it's exactly 75 attributed to David in the Scriptures. Um, but we're going to get into, like, the sons of Korah, Ethan the Ezraite, and it's so fascinating taking the time to do the study of seeing who those men were and how they connected back to the praise David called for at the, at the tabernacle, then the temple. You know, and uh, it, it's just a, a, a rich study. You know, some of you may remember the Petra song, Kenaniah of the Levites. <laughs> he didn't write a psalm, but it's that kind of thing. You know, Kenaniah is listed when you look in there. And then these other cats, they were some of that same kind of thing going on. So pretty neat. Okay, well, let's look at Psalm 38 a little bit here. It is an individual lament. So we call Jeremiah's book Lamentations because he was lamenting over the fall of Israel. And there's plenty of lamentation in these verses. And um, the older I get, the more I try to appreciate lament language in the Scripture and use it to form my own prayers, you know. Uh, you know, when you're young, maybe you lament a breakup, you know, or something like that. Uh, now, some people have, you know, tragedy enter their lives early on as a child, you know, that death of a parent or someone close to them or some other thing happens. And so I'm so thankful that whether younger or older, when many of us have had tragedies and things that didn't go our way and disappointments and hurts and heartaches and those things, Scripture can give voice to uh, our lamenting. And sometimes that is thinking about frustrating circumstances around you and saying, how long, O Lord? But David is very specific in this psalm. He really is connecting this lamentation uh, to, um, to, to what? What is David mostly lamenting in the early verses of this psalm? Did you catch it as we went through? It's a three-letter word. Sin, right? Sin. I is right in the middle of sin, right? And David's lamenting his own sin in here. And... We gather as we read Psalm 38, and, and what I like about this is this goes along with Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 where you hear lament language, confession language, and David turning his heart back over to God. You have some of this in here. So this is another one where uh, we, we, uh, that, that we can add to that list of Psalms like Psalm 51 and, and, and 32. Um, but uh, it looks like David's experiencing some kind of sickness and believes that some of it has happened because of his own sin. Now, there's not always a direct connection between our sin and some sickness or affliction we are facing. But there certainly can be. There certainly can be. Um, 
smoking, drinking, overeating, drug use, all can cause long-term health problems, you know. I think I've told you the story before about me visiting a lady in the hospital and she was dying of lung cancer and I said, she's in her 50s, and I said, oh, I'm so sorry for you and what a, what a, what a shock. And she said, it's not a shock, I smoked two packs a day for years, you know. They say don't because it brings lung cancer, I got lung cancer. Now I've known others, had lung cancer, never smoked, you know, so there's not always, but sometimes you can. Um, sexual promiscuity can lead to sexually transmitted diseases. And also sexual promiscuity in general can leave you, um, you know, less able to bond uh, with the, your spouse later on. You know, that's something that if you've been real promiscuous, you're going to have to overcome. God's forgiven you, and yet, um, you know, there, there's that. Uh, driving too fast, driving drunk, driving while texting can lead to death or serious injuries for the one driving and those they hit, you know. Um, and so uh, there can be a connection, and David's looking for that here. Um, it's also now known that things like ulcers and headaches and hypertension can be caused by worry, jealousy, and guilt. Not always, but sometimes, you know, there's a physical connection with um, some sin. You know, there's been times over the years where uh, somebody in their teens or somebody in their 20s, their parents are trying to figure out why they're having uh, some things going on, you know, and sometimes there's unconfessed sin there, you know. Not always, but sometimes, you know, and that can be true for older ones as well, you know. Um, and we know that David's thinking about that here because in verse 5, he's clear that part of, his, of what he's experiencing is, is because of his own what? Verse 5, foolishness. So there's your fill-in-the-blank, foolishness. Yeah, I love David's honesty here. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. Um, and, you know, if you uh, you can just think of different ways that could be true. And, again, let me just pause to say, because you can't say this enough, you know, um, sin is not necessarily always linked to our own sin. We're just saying it can be. Sometimes our suffering is related to what somebody else has foolishly done toward us. And sometimes it's just happening because sin is in the world since the fall of man. Original sin came in. And as we've been reading about in Ecclesiastes, the best of us are going to have some days filled with light, but plenty of dark days also where things just don't work out, where we get frustrated, where we, uh, you know, our spouse has yelled at us or we've yelled at them and we got to practice all that forgiveness stuff that's in the scriptures, you know. Um, and uh, so I like David's honesty in there. Well, in verses 1 through 11, we're going to kind of divide this up into two main sections, verses 1 through 11. Three, I think. I got three sections. Verses 1 through 11, David vividly describes the agony he is feeling. So in verse 1, we read that David feels God's wrath, feels God's displeasure. And then David humbly confesses his sin and foolishness to the Lord. And some of David's words in these verses look a lot like what Job was experiencing in the book of Job. And some of it seems to be borrowed right from there. So the expression arrows of verse 2 is in Job 6.4. The references to bones in verse 6 is like Job 33.19. And the aloofness he feels from family and friends in verse 11 is like Job 19. Let's turn to Job 19 and see that. So Job is the book just before the Psalms, so turn left. Now, 
later in Job 19. What is Job 19 famous for? <laughs> Job 19 is famous for something in the church. Uh, you might have heard somebody sing uh, the song, I Know My Redeemer Lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. Well, that's language uh, in verse uh, 25. But we're looking a little bit before that. Job 19, 13. He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I'm an alien in their sight. I call my servant, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. <laughs> That's funny. And I'm repulsive to the children of my own body. Even young children despise me. I arise and they speak against me. All my close friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. And of course, Job was experiencing physical ailments at that time, in addition to mourning the death of his children. And uh, he's just really in a hard place. And uh, that's what makes it so amazing when just a few verses later he says, hey, mark this down, write it in chisel, chisel this in. I know my Redeemer lives and I'm gonna see him face to face one day. After this body's destroyed in my flesh, I will see God. So he's anticipating being dead and gone and yet one day seeing the Messiah standing on the earth and him getting to be in a glorified body with the Messiah, uh, pretty cool to think about. So that's the end of Job 19 there. Now again, not all suffering and sickness has a correlation with our sin, but some does, and we've already mentioned that. And David senses that some of what he's experiencing is because of his sins and his foolish behavior. Now, we talk about God's judgment in a couple different ways. And one is the active judgment of God where uh, we can... Um, you know, we understand that he uh, will directly judge sin. There will be a great white throne judgment. There will be a lake of fire, you know, et cetera. But um, sometimes we, uh, and, and David talks about feeling God's displeasure here, but some uh, of the ways that God judged sin is at first passive. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean Romans 1 by that, right? It says that people defied, they did what God said don't do, they defied him and they experienced God's judgment or the ju they experienced judgment in their bones, you know, et cetera. And so there, there are, sin um, does have built-in consequences that can be experienced before we ever start speaking of the active judgment of God. Break that down a little more for me, Pastor Danny. Okay, I will. Um, a built-in consequence of the sin of lying is others not being able to trust you, right? So before God ever actively judges us for that sin, we're already experiencing built-in consequences of that sin. And I think this is worth thinking about sometimes. And I don't know when you'll have time to meditate on this, but jot it down, meditate on it sometime. Think about the nature of sin. And for every sin, I believe there's built-in consequences. So I have an owner's manual for my car, and it says how I should treat the car. I haven't really read it and don't know much about cars. But it says, for instance, the kind of gas that would be best to put in my car. Now, I can put sugar in there and hope it runs. You know, I can put any number of things in there and hope it runs. But when it doesn't, I can't blame the car or the designer of the car that it didn't run right, right? Me misusing the intended design of the thing comes with its own built-in consequences. Are you tracking with me? 
And I think for every sin the Bible calls sin, you can find, if you think hard enough about it, a built-in consequence of that sin. Lying's a pretty easy one because if we lie to each other, we can't trust each other. And so I may get short-term gain, get somebody off my back by telling a lie, but ultimately when they find out, they're going to have trouble trusting me, and i got to keep track of my lies. So that's going to mess with my head some, right? And uh, think about the anxiety and guilt David must have had in relationship to his sin against Uriah the Hittite. Uh, Bathsheba was not David's wife, Uriah the Hittite's wife, you know. And uh, so David uh, should have been out in battle, and he wasn't. He saw her there um, and, uh, you know, swiped right on the tinder or whatever and got her over to his house, you know, and uh, had relations with her. We really don't know enough from the story to know if she lured him into that. I mean, it was common practice to bathe on the roof. Nobody else with a house the same size could see her. But David, from up where he was, could see her. But this is the moral, righteous king. Why would he be looking down? He's not supposed to be there anyway. He's supposed to be off at war. You know? So we do know that David let lust turn into, uh, he, he pursued the lust. He didn't say no to it. And so he committed adultery. And then uh, he, of course, had her husband killed to cover it up and to try to hide it. And tremendous consequences from that, his own children's disrespect for him as the years unfolded and uh, the anxiety and guilt and, 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 you know, it's amazing how much many times somebody is over the top in their anger, they're hiding sin of their own. And so when Nathan came and told him a little story about the man that had a thousand sheep but was using the neighbor's sheep to feed a, a, a somebody that came by, David said, that man needs to die if he's in this country. And was it Nathan the prophet said, thou art the man. And that's where David's defenses crumbled and stuff. So we think about that, that you, know, you can experience those things, and you, what you're really doing is experiencing the passive judgment of God, wherein you're not using things the way he designed them. And then we also read of the active judgment of God. But God's such a gentleman, he, uh, you know, he, he uh, begins with that passive before the active most of the time. Now, you may have heard of a book called The Body Keeps the Score. The Body Keeps the Score. Um, and it was written a couple years back, and it basically said, it was another of these doctor-type people saying, it's amazing how much uh, of things are, you know, that we experience wrong in our bodies are because of the misuse of our, uh, of, of our bodies and things like that. And they, those bad habits eventually show up in the performance of the body and brain. Let's look at the vivid way David describes what he's feeling is happening to him. In verse 2, he says, Your, God's arrows have stuck into him. So he feels like uh, he's got the, the God's the archer who's putting arrows into him. And we think about some of the ways that you have sharp pains in your body sometimes. Verse 2, he feels like God's hand is pressing him uh, down. So pierced arrows, your hand pressing me down. Sometimes people feel uh, crushing anxiety in them. In fact, look at verse 4. He says, My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. I don't know if you've ever felt a sense of panic and, and circumstances crushing in on you. Um, in verse 5, he speaks of open, smelly wounds. My wounds are foul and festering. <laughs> and in verse 7, he may be speaking of digestive difficulties. My loins are full of inflammation. You know, I mean... Uh, Verse 8, he seems almost dizzy from, he talks about feebleness and 
heart turmoil. And so, boy, David's just got a way of being picturesque in his words, doesn't he? You know, uh, I mean, I say, man, I got a headache. I think I need a Tylenol. David's like, God's arrows are pressing into me. <laughs> his hand is heavy upon me. And so, you know, he's, uh, he's a king. He's a warrior. But he's also a poet and a singer. Despite his agony, though, David still trusts in the Lord. And we see that in verse 19, uh, verse 9, sorry. Look what he says there. Lord, all my desire is before you, and I know that you hear my sighing. My sighing is not hidden from you. And I think David's stating there in the midst of this, uh, you know, lamenting uh, over his sin and the fact that he thinks some of what he's experiencing is because of that sin, he's basically stating that God is his only hope. His only hope. What seems to be uh, affected when he talks in verse 10? The light of my eyes, so maybe some eyesight difficulty too. Verse 10 he says, the light of my eyes that also is gone from me. Um, and then verse 11 is interesting because he says, my loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, my relatives stand afar off. So maybe, just maybe, David in his sickness, whatever it was, was also contagious, and the uh, Levitical laws had to kick in, you know. And you've read a little bit about this somewhere in your Bible reading. Uh, what, would they, what, what would happen if a person had something that was contagious uh, in Old Testament Israel? Mike? I think you'd have to go to the priest, wouldn't you? Yeah, you'd have to go to the priest, and if it was uh, deemed that you had something that was contagious, what would they do? They'd quarantine you. This is sophisticated stuff, you know. Back before any nations knew anything about this, God was telling His people, you know, uh, several things related to medical care. Uh, if you've got something that's going to be contagious and could spread quickly through the camp, you isolate. Uh, it also says quite a bit about washing of the hands and things like that, washing in running water. And you know, in the 17 or 1800s, when doctors started doing that before and after surgeries, it changed a lot uh, for good. Uh, in, um, in, in medical care. You know, before that, a lot of people died of unnecessary stuff simply because they were in the fifth surgery of the day, still using some of the same instruments they'd used earlier, uh, still doing some of that pretty crudely, chopping things off, sawing things off and stuff, and it was just all in there together, and they hadn't washed their hands and spreading it all together. And so uh, God says some neat things about that in Leviticus. Um, but the priests, uh, part of the priest's responsibilities and the Levites were to be the ones that would check into these things, practice the quarantine, and you had to be uh, visibly non-contagious uh, before you'd be able to go back out again. And so maybe, just maybe, David was undergoing something like that. Family couldn't come in. Friends couldn't come in. Or maybe he is speaking just metaphorically about how because of his sin, people didn't want to be around him, you know. And uh, sometimes that's true too, right? Uh, oh my, I need to give that person some space because if I see them, I'm going to hit them. <laughs> you know, after what they did to you know my sister, or my uncle, or whatever. You know, um, so uh, and I, I couldn't help in here but think about all the people who couldn't see their loved ones during COVID. You know, and uh, very frustrating. And I know Emily saw a lot of it there at the hospital. So verses one through eleven, he's just really vivid in this language of the agony he's facing. Anything particularly speak out to you there in those first 11 verses about uh, David's honesty there and just uh, him putting it out there? I don't think from this 
this one passage, this one psalm, we're going to argue that David understood all judgment to somehow be related to sin, you know. But he, we, we certainly do draw that out sometimes in our own lives. We can draw connection when we come. When we can do that, we should repent of it, right? Confess it as sin. Mike? Um, uh, earlier, <clears throat> I thought about what Jesus said, if your hand offends you, cut it off. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which we mean we should take our sin seriously. Yeah. I was really impressed with the fact that David, he really takes his sin yeah. seriously. Yeah. Um, which is unusual, isn't it? It is. Good point, Mike. You know, uh, it is unusual. Maybe it should be a little less so. You know, maybe we should have some of our own Psalms where we're saying, Lord, you know, uh, I'm, we do want to be careful, you know, um, that we don't draw the connection that anything we're experiencing is because of some kind of sin because, you know, we do that with others too. And the whole point of the book of Job is Job's got all these ailments, all these things that are going wrong, and none of them were because of his own sin, right? And so his buddies show up and mourn with him seven days. Who's going to wait seven days without saying anything? And then when they do, they say, come on, Job, what'd you do? <laughs> Come on, Job, what'd you do? Uh, in their simple theology, he had to have done something. And sometimes you run into individual believers who are thinking that for themselves also. So we do want to be careful, but we want to be impressed with David too, uh, that anything he can find that he can, you know. And, um, you know, it's amazing how when we come clean, so to speak, with God in confession, how the healing can begin, you know. So that's a good, good point there. Patsy. It is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. David, uh, you might need to see the pastor or a psychiatrist or something. You know, sounds like you need a sedative. You know, and maybe they do. Uh, but uh, yeah, David, uh, what a guy! What a guy! Yes, sir. Right. Yeah. This, this is because so and so did this. Or yeah. David's looking inward first. Yeah. And that's really good because there are times we've read some of the Psalms where he says, Man, these turkeys, you know, God take care of them because I can't stop every rumor in town, you know, and stuff. But here he is saying, I think this is on me, God. There's something here that I need to deal with. And like that great hymn, It's Me, It's Me, It's Me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. So that's the good. Place we should look is inward. And that's the point, isn't it? That's good. That's good. Well, verses 12 to 20, thanks for that feedback, everybody. Verses 12 to 20, David understands his enemies would love to see his downfall. And so, you know, he's just talking to the Lord. He's praying to the Lord. It's going to turn into a song that Israel's going to sing. And uh, he, he understands, look at verse 12. He says, those also who seek my life lay snares for me. So right now my family and friends, they're standing a little bit off from me. They wonder what's happened. And uh, they're, they're, they're aloof right now, but those also who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction, and they plan deception all the day long. And then in verse 19, he says, my enemies are vigorous and they are strong. He's, he's in a weakened state himself, and he's saying, man, my enemies out there, they're vigorous, they're strong. Those who hate me wrongfully have multiplied, so the number of them is growing. We think of sometimes when you feel uh, just kind of afflicted, uh, and it may 
be in large part because of your own sin and foolishness, as David's already admitted here. All of a sudden, uh, it just seems like people are, are less responsive to you. And, uh, you know, and, and David knows that he's got enemies out there, uh, probably both from without and from within Israel. We read about some of those when we read the story of David in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Chronicles. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he, uh, he understands his enemies would like to use this. Verse 20 uh, says they uh, would love to render me evil for good. Um, they're my adversaries because I follow what is good. So according to the second part of verse 20 there, I just read it. Why are these people David's enemies? Why does he think there is, en there is enemies? What does he follow? He follows what is good. And he said, the bottom line is, Lord, and David, remember this is directed toward God. He said, the bottom line is, God, those that would use this against me, uh, so many of them, uh, you know, what they really don't like about me is my faith in you, that I follow your ways, that I love you. And you guys have been around the block long enough to have at least somebody in your life that doesn't like it that you love Jesus, uh, doesn't like it that you believe in biblical truth that says, well, why don't you just accept, you know, uh, this sin in our friend group or our family group or whatever. Uh, and, and, you know, you've got to explain that you love the sinner, but you hate the sin and what it causes and how um, uh, it messes things up. Um, and I hope that testimony is true of you and me as well. To the extent that anybody makes us their enemy, it's because we follow God's truth, God's way, uh, the good way. In other words, they don't like us because they don't like Jesus. So can anybody quote John 16, 33? Jesus said, there it is. Star of the day goes to Donnie over there. That's right. John 16, 33. Um, Jesus told us we're going to have trouble in the world. He told his disciples there, you're going to go out there and listen. If they hated me, they're not going to love you talking about me. If they uh, hated me calling out their sin, they're not going to like it when you talk about sin and the need to turn to God. Um, you know, uh, I'm amazed people still like the hymn Amazing Grace. It just shows people aren't really listening to stuff, do they? Because, I mean, right in there, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. How many people you know, even in the uh, church world, call themselves a wretch, you know? And yet earlier believers had no problem saying, it's not about me. In my flesh, I'm a wretch. I would do any number of things against the Lord. You know, in my flesh dwells no good thing. My heart is desperately wicked, like Jeremiah 17, 9 says. I'm not a good person. You're not a good person. It's not about that at all. We're, none of us are righteous. No, not one. Now, that doesn't mean we do all the bad things we could do because God has created us in His image and likeness. So even in the worst of sinners, you'll see a little spark in there somewhere of them knowing what's just and right to do even if they're not doing it, you know. But... Um, uh, what's the way Paul said it? Uh, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? 
will be persecuted, will be persecuted. That doesn't mean we need to have a persecution complex. Oh, they're out to get me because I love Jesus and that sort of thing. But we do want to be sobered that both Jesus and, you know, key apostle Paul described that we'll have all the ordinary troubles that people have in the world, but there will be an added layer of pressure upon believers because uh, people didn't like Jesus. They won't like us. They, they won't want to hear what we have to say. Um, <laughs> I always like to say it here, and some of you are tired of hearing me say it and stuff, but when I was first saved and went to the church there, a uh, fellow met me at the door with a little bulletin, and uh, he poked me in the stomach and said, you're staying out of trouble, aren't you? Staying out of trouble, aren't you? I thought that was the Baptist greeting. <laughs> and so I've been reading in my Bible, and I saw these words by Jesus and the words by Paul there. And so the next time that fella, you know, stuck out his hand at the door, hey, you're staying out of trouble, aren't you? I looked at him and said, mister... I'm not trying to stay out of trouble. I was just reading Jesus saying that I'm going to have trouble in the world. I'm not trying to stay out of trouble. I'm trying to get in trouble for the right reasons. I thought that was pretty clever, and it's meant a lot to me ever since. And he looked at me like, yeah, that's, that's right, that's right. So, so the next week I came in and saw him. You know what he did? He's staying out of trouble, aren't you? <laughs> and I've heard people say that forever and a day. But you know what? Um, I've said this before, too, and maybe you remember me saying it, but, um, you know, you, you sometimes do a funeral, and, oh, so nobody ever said anything bad about this person. They never said anything bad about others. And I'm like, what? Never any righteous indignation about something? You know, and I know that's the way you speak at, you know, funerals, things like that, you know, but um, to live and to love God is to hate sin and its effects in the world. And so, you know, I hope you're on record saying some things shouldn't be, you know. Uh, I, hate, I hope you lament not only your own sin, but acts of hypocrisy that give the Church of Jesus Christ a bad name and, you know, make our job more difficult, you know. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that's worth getting on record some, you know, even as we're trying to reach out in love and the truth of the gospel. Verses 13 and 14, this is uh, where Donnie was going some too, I think. But it shows David's more noble spirit toward his enemies, even while he's down and out. So I like the way he phrased this. Man, when they talk about my destruction and they're planning deception toward me, I know they're out there doing that. But he said, I'm like a deaf man. I do not hear. I'm like a mute who does not open his mouth. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, I know they're saying it, but I'm not going to dwell on it, and I'm not going to respond with hateful words. Um, I think of the great movie about Nelson Mandela and the rugby uh, tournament that they hosted there, and Mandela had assembled black and white both guards together because he wanted it to be a new day in South Africa. So instead of now that the uh, uh, Nelson Mandela and the African National Congress was in power, they didn't they didn't look immediately to just go after all the the uh, Afrikaners that had uh, messed them over. And so he intentionally tried to put together a um, black and white guards, black and white this, black and white that, you know. And uh, the movie about the rugby tournament shows them being in a stadium and the black and white guards are either side of Mandela and as they're walking back toward the tunnel, people are just shouting racist things and they're throwing, uh, you know, because um, rugby had mostly been a white sport, soccer was mostly the black sport in South Africa at the time. And somebody throws a, a, a bottle of beer or something, a cup of beer or something and it whizzes by and things like that. And Mandela's just, you know, 
I kind of waved into the crowd. They go in the tunnel, and he said, the guy said, the white guy turns to the black guard, and he says, I can't believe he didn't see that or hear that. And the black guard turned back to him and said, and I forget the name, the nickname that Mandela had, but he basically said, Nelson sees everything and he hears everything. Don't you believe he didn't see it? He's just rising above it, right? He's rising above it. And David's doing that here, the noble spirit that's inside of it. What does he do instead? He takes such things to God in prayer. It's not like he didn't have an outlet for it. Um, as king, he could have had some people executed. And we know at least one story where he <laughs> left one man that had uh, scorned him and hadn't repented. He left uh, <laughs> that for his son to deal with afterwards and stuff. But was that Zeba? Was it Zeba? Caleb, do you remember? Yeah. <laughs> Here's a to-do list, Solomon. So-and-so was disrespectful, and they need to be taught how you act toward a king. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so uh, verse 16, he says, Hear me, O God, I'm praying to you about this, lest they rejoice over me lest when my foot slips, they exalt themselves against me. Again, verses 17 and 18, I think show David's maturity as a believer. He can't control whether this is the death of him or not, but he can confess his sin and be ready to meet God if this is his time. I think that's what he has in mind when he says in verse 17, for I am ready to fall. If this sickness means my death, I'm ready for that, Lord. My sorrow is continually before me, Verse 18, for I will declare my iniquity, I will be in anguish over my sin. So getting back to Mike's, Mike's point here, uh, I might fall through this and I want to make sure I'm right with God, so I'm going to confess, you know, I'm in anguish over my sin. And if this means the death of me, at least I've gone out with a clean slate before God, having confessed to him, received his forgiveness. In Psalm 32, we remember him talking about how blessed is the man who's sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are covered. And he talks about when I kept silent, man, my, things got worse in my body. But when I confessed to you, you heard me, you forgave my sin, you cleansed me from all iniquity. And so I, I like that. Um, I've gotten in the habit when I get called to a hospital like I was today or um, uh, to a person's home and there is a strong possibility this might be the last time I see somebody, I've gotten in the habit of not only talking over some scriptures and things, but toward the end there, um, just kind of uh, talking about the hope we have in the gospel and then looking the person in the eye, sometimes trying to get my hands up to their head too and just looking them in the eye and doing that long gaze, you know, that, that last look where you might see somebody alive, you know. And I, of course, pray over them in that moment, too. And a lot of times I'll kiss them on the forehead, you know, man or woman, either one, you know, just because uh, that's a holy kiss kind of moment sort of thing. But I just love David's heart here. I'm ready to fall. My sorrow is before me, but I will declare my iniquity to you. I'll be in anguish over my sins. I, I like that. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. I think all believers want to wrestle with this Psalm 38 type thing David's facing, and hopefully it doesn't mean sickness to make it happen, but sometimes we think about things when we're sick. Is this it, Lord? Um, Paul was experiencing something like that, sick in a Roman prison. 
Uh, and as he writes to the Philippians, he's in prison, and um, he's sick. Of, he, he's got some sickness. Something's going wrong with Paul, too. And verse 19, he says, he knows people are praying for him. The churches that he's ministered to are praying that he'll get healed and live longer. Ooh, they're going, aren't they? Uh, Philippians 1.19, he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And I think most people here know this verse. Verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is what? Die is gain. Only a believer can say that. An unbeliever can't say to die is gain. They, they uh, are upset because life's over. They won't be able to do anything else in this life. The believer says to die is gain. Verse 22, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. I think that's always, that's always struck me as funny since we don't get to choose, right? I mean, uh, the hand of God may give us 15 more years, maybe 15 more minutes, you know. Verse 23, for I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Far better, yeah, better home, a better fellowship, a better body, <laughs> all the things that are great about all the future God has for us. Verse 24, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And then there's the verse, I wish we could all have this inside of us, and being confident of this, verse 25, and being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. What is the double confidence that Paul had when he wrote, being confident of this? If he died, the best is yet to come for the believer. If he gets to live on, he'll get to continue helping others on their own walk with Christ. Non-Christians becoming Christians, Christians growing, all the different ways that we matter to others in this world. And that's the confidence that I want for every one of you and myself, because uh, that, that, that'll make us bold, like Paul talks about being bold there, right? This may kill me. This may be my time. And if it is, I'll be better off. I got it made either way. If I stay on longer, it's just more opportunities to love my wife, pour into my family, my friends, my church and prayers, all the things that make a difference why we're here. Uh, that's not as fully developed in Psalm 38 as it is in Philippians 1, but David says, I'm ready to fall. I'm ready if this is it. And part of being being ready was, I've had a little talk with Jesus, right? I've confessed it all up. I, I, all that sin that I was just lamenting over, I've confessed it to the Lord. And because of some of this being my fault, as he seems to identify here, I still know, I still know that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, as he wrote in Psalm 23. So he wants to remain on. That's what he's praying for. But what a great place for us to be as believers. And in verses 21 and 22, he closes in prayer asking for the Lord's deliverance. Don't forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, of my salvation. Now, before we close here, help me out. What do you like about how David approaches his ailments in this psalm? 
we've said some of them already. Been a great participation night. Anybody else want to add anything? Donnie mentioned a good one earlier. You know, he's making it about himself first uh, and not saying it's somebody else's fault. That's key to uh, that's key to a lot of things in life, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, being people that talk to the Lord for ourselves rather than just blame others, you know. If Coach only to put me in, we'd won that game. We'd been high school champs. If Coach only put me in. <laughs> I, I like that he speaks in specifics and not generalities. Yeah. Yeah. When's the last time you called yourself a fool? I don't do it enough. <laughs> David says, man, I'm, I've got foul and festering wounds because of my foolishness, you know. That humility to, to to be honest and genuine with the Lord. Yeah, good. All right, good class tonight. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.